Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. All right, best agility practices round two. This one is a little complicated and I might get a little passion talky because it's important to me and I think it's nuanced and I think it's something that needs to be a conversation in our community, which is essentially... How do we get speed? How do we get these dogs to be fast? Will they simply be fast if they like the sport? Does speed equal enjoyment? Is speed gained other ways sometimes? Is speed sometimes gained in ways that are maybe not so nice? Maybe not helpful? There are a lot of answers to all of these questions and I'm not going to stand here and say that I hold all the keys to all the things, but I am going to give you my thoughts as they exist today, which are extremely evolved from when I first started in the sport. So first I'm going to say that I do not agree with the notion that dogs have to be going fast to learn how to go fast. So essentially, I am not going to have speed as a criterion in my obstacle performance early. I am perfectly fine with my dog weaving, for instance, slowly. If my dog is accurate and tells me he's confident, how would he tell me that? He's busting to get back to the weaves. He's completing the loop in my training on his own. He is not opting out. He is staying engaged. I don't care if he does that then at a kind of reasonable but not lightning fast pace because I trust that that speed will come as his confidence grows, as his fluency grows. I feel that way about all of the obstacles. I like to allow speed to come with confidence, generally speaking, especially if it's a dog that kind of should be fast. So based on structure, based on breed, if the dog generally should be kind of, should be quick, moves quick in daily life, is a quick moving kind of animal, then I'm going to trust that speed will come as my dog grows confidence in the sport. I'm not going to worry a lot if my novice dog is not super fast. In fact, I think it's easier on us if our novice dogs are not super fast um, because with that, with confidence will come speed even if they're fast right out the gate. They'll get faster. You certainly can teach speed as what I'm going to call a core skill or a prerequisite skill for other things. So what does that mean? It means that you encourage all out running in other times in your dog's life. 
Um, for instance, my puppy Rhea is learning the joy of running as hard as she can. She does it in the backyard with my border collies, who she will never be as fast as, but she tries her best. She learns it out in the woods on trails. She likes to run fast. The sheer joy of running fast is one that I want the dog to have that I don't think I need to teach them in an agility context. And in fact, I'd prefer not to. I prefer for them to learn it in real world context so that they know how to go fast and they love to go fast. So in that sense, I am not going to concern myself with how fast she is going in agility skills if she is going forward with gusto. There's no um, sniffing. There's no looking around. There's She's quick. She's quick to respond. She closes that loop. I am not going to worry if she is running all out early on. I'm going to worry instead about fluency. So I think that building speed as a core skill outside of agility is important. I think that then holding fluency as a, a kind of a core value for you as a trainer is the other piece. For me, if the dog is sound of body and mind and is trained to do the job, then the dog will go as fast as he is comfortable going. And that is always fast enough for me. It may not be fast enough for everybody. And how fast my Icelandic sheepdog is comfortable going has to do with how fast she's comfortable going in other contexts. How fast my border collie is comfortable going also has to do with how fast he's comfortable being in other contexts. So it's important that we encourage speed and all out running and, and have a lot of opportunities for them to do that in real life. And then it's really important that we teach them everything they need to know and we don't put a lot of pressure on them to be fast while they're learning those skills. It has been popular in our sport for a, a long time to try to put the dog in a super high state of arousal during agility training. And what that tends to look like is maybe a lot of um, really high energy toy play or a lot of opposition reflex usage during our training. So that high energy toy play tends to look like tugging, tends not so much to look like chasing a ball. And that's, that's actually really interesting. Um, and I think it has to do with my next point. But basically putting the dog in a higher state before you ask the dog to do the thing has been culturally accepted as the way to get speed. And I'm going to argue that when you do that, you do a couple of different things. One of them is that what you're actually doing, I think, is frustrating the dog a little bit, maybe angering the dog a little bit, um, and therefore getting a burst of energy as the dog experiences relief from that frustration or anger, and they're able to channel that burst of energy towards what they're doing. I am not saying don't do that, but I am saying recognize that that is what you're doing 
and recognize that that doesn't always come without fallout. So if I'm going to, let's just say that I am going to push my dog a little bit with some frustration or maybe some anger or some irritation in a, let's say, a restrained recall. So the restraint itself, my friend is holding on to the puppy, the restraint itself is causing a little bit of that frustration and that anger. Um, if it's not causing all-out distress, which it really needs to not cause all-out distress if it's going to work for you. And I'm running away, and that's inciting a little bit more frustration. And then the puppy gets released, and all of that relief of that tension of that frustration gets channeled into her speed chasing me down, and she is faster. Absolutely. Then if I just put a cookie on the ground and ran away from her and when her head came up, I called her and she chased me down. So which one I'm going to choose needs to depend on my learner. Because if what you're doing is causing a little bit of discomfort in order for relief of that discomfort to be channeled into speed, you need to know about your learner. So the example I just used, if the dog is actually afraid of the person restraining them in the restrained recall, and now relief of fear is what's happening as they chase you down, you're weaving some emotions into this training procedure that are really yucky that you don't want anywhere near your dog sports. Okay, same coin. What if I have a dog that is just going to turn around and bite the person that's holding on to them? probably not appropriate for that puppy either. I'm going to give you a human example a little bit here. Because if you kind of want to get a rise out of someone who's a friend of yours, because that's all we want, right? If we want that burst of energy into the tunnel or into the flat work chasing you down or whatever, that we so often use restraint to get or so often use pushy toy play to get, that's what we're doing. We want to get a rise out of them. So if I'm teasing a friend of mine to get a rise out of her, I need to know which friend I'm teasing, right? And I need to know what kind of teasing I'm using. Because if I am teasing a friend who is going to take my teasing really personally, or if I choose my teasing words poorly and they hit below the belt, and now my friend is crying or now my friend is upset with me and doesn't want to talk to me anymore... I did not get the correct rise out of that friend. I got a response, but not the one that I wanted. What if this is a friend who's got an anger problem? And they, you know, she straight up stabs me with a fork across the table. We're at dinner. I'm teasing her. I'm trying to get a rise out of her. And she just stabs my hand straight into the table with her fork. Yeah, not a good idea, right? Not a good idea to tease that friend in that way. But if I'm hitting that sweet spot, the friend might come right back at me with a teasing remark and then we laugh and we're both having a good time, a good high energy exchange. So with your dog, you really want to be thinking, where's this dog at right now? Who is this dog that I'm training? Because if I put any more pressure on say Felix so if I had him restrained um, and ran away or you know was queuing an obstacle 
him just waiting to be told to do the obstacle is like shaking up a soda can. Okay, just him being asked to control himself is like shaking up the soda can. So I don't also need the soda can to get hit with a baseball bat. Because then the explosion I'm going to get is way too big and not helpful. When you're thinking about the dog that you're training, think, was this dog bred for sports and speed? Because if so, you know, if this dog came out of the womb latched on a tug toy, then your teasing or your restraint or your use of frustration needs to be probably smarter and maybe doesn't need to be present at all in order for you to get the speed that you desire. There are a lot of dogs in my clientele who are this kind of dog. They're bred for sports. They came out of the womb tugging. They were ready to go. And then the owner played a whole lot of frustration-inducing, quote-unquote, drive-building games. And now they've got a dog that cannot control himself, is an aroused hot mess on that course. They are biting, they are barking, they are salivating, and they are out of their own control, let alone the handler's control. I'm going to suggest if that's the dog you bought that you actually zero in on self-regulation behaviors and teaching that dog stimulus control around his obstacle cues and his handling cues rather than obsessing over building speed. Okay, whereas you might have a dog who, for whom you know agility is going to be physically not as easy, so maybe it's a... Um, I don't know, a basset hound or a beagle that you're going to do agility with. Both of these breeds I've seen do agility for sure. Um, neither of them come out of the womb latched to a tug toy usually, okay? And neither of them come out of the womb wanting to chase you down full speed necessarily. They come out of the womb wanting to put their nose down to the trail and, you know, scent their way through life. So with that dog, you might utilize a little more of this teasing get a little rise out of them in a way that you aren't wise to if you bought a malinois so thinking always about the dog in front of us and watching always what their responses are to what we are doing is what is wise when it comes to speed and now let's say that you have a dog that you are already running two years old and they are not going as fast as you know that they can. I would say if they're that young and they're new to this kind of game and they're going the same speed roughly in training as they are in trials, give them time. They'll get there. Make sure that your handling is clear because they're probably a really nice dog that's hanging back and letting you show them in due time. Let's say your handling's pretty good and the dog is four or five, and you just want to shave a little bit of time off because you want to beat so-and-so. I would say in, the, in that instance, have a look at your obstacles. Can any of them be sped up with some better fluency, some better understanding? Okay, so not frustration, not quote-unquote drive building, but better understanding. Is your dog creeping into that two-on-two-off and that's killing your time? Maybe you want to teach a running or maybe you want to teach that dog to pound into the two-on-two-off and that will go faster. Um, let's say your dog is a what we refer to as an off-breed, 
okay, so I'm just going to use my Icelandic sheepdog as, a, as an example. Not very many ICs doing agility yet. Um, let's say that I start running her and I'm not super pleased with the speed that she's giving me. I'm probably going to rewind, have a look at some foundation skills and see... <laughs> she's weighing in. She knows I'm talking about her. Um, and see if I can actually put more speed into any of those foundation skills and I might utilize some teasy types of games to do that. I might. It depends on what it is and it depends on what her response is to those teasy types of games. So there aren't hard and fast rules here other than this. If the dog is sound and physically capable Okay, because I used Basset Hound as an example, but not all Basset Hounds are actually physically capable of doing agility, and it might not be fair to ask them to. So the dog is sound. They're physically capable. They're not concerned about the environment because that kills speed a lot of the time, or it creates too much speed sometimes. Um, so they're sound of mind and body. They're comfortable. Look at who they are and decide you know, do I need to help them learn a little bit more about running their body by taking them out into some wide open fields for them to run? Or do I want to play some games that get a little bit of a rise out of them and build those games into some of my foundations? Or is it my fluency, actually, that is lacking? So... Hopefully, that wasn't too nuanced. Hopefully, it's easy for everybody to understand. I'm not saying do this and not that. I am saying pay attention to the results you're getting and pay attention to the dog that you bought and the dog that you're training. Okay, some Patreon questions for you. First one comes from Elisa, who asks, how to reduce the rate of reinforcement without creating frustration for the dog. My one-year-old dog will start to vocalize when I ask for multiple behaviors before marking and reinforcing with food. I'm using well-known cues with a big reinforcement history. Asking for two behaviors is usually okay, but sometimes more than that will result in some whining. This doesn't happen when working on agility type stuff, I'm guessing because it's motion-based, but asking for a hand touch, then a spin, then a sit seems frustrating at times for him. If I reinforce each behavior, he's fine. So my guess is that the drop in rate of reinforcement is the issue. That is the issue, expected reinforcement is not showing up and so you're getting some frustration behaviors it is important when your dogs are puppies to introduce them to the concept of doing several things uh, for food rather than just always one thing when we're teaching we tend to do one thing one behavior or i'm sorry one behavior one cookie that that sort of rate of reinforcement that sort of uh, reinforcement schedule and it's important that we introduce them to the concept early that they can do more than that for one piece of food or even, you know, several pieces of food. So you're going to need to ease him into this if he's a year old um, and be you need to be a scientist about it. You're probably going, oh, I did it again after you've asked him for like four or five things. Know that if he's in an easy environment, he can definitely do more things in a row than not. And so if he's in a tough environment, I would still keep that rate of reinforcement really high. And I'd basically do one behavior, one behavior, one behavior, two behaviors, two behaviors, one behavior, one behavior, three behaviors. So that sort of thing. So you're keeping that momentum going. Um, also, if you ask for three things and want to give one treat, 
that's also a problem. So your ratio of reinforcement needs to equal the ratio of uh, kind of the amount of uh, your ratio, I'm sorry, of effort to reinforcement needs to be equal. So essentially if the dog has to do three things and you're used to giving the dog a treat for one thing, maybe give three treats in a row. Maybe make the treats more exciting to make each treat pack a bigger punch. The fact that the dog is fine stringing behaviors together when there's motion involved tells me that motion itself is probably a little bit reinforcing for the dog, and so I might toss the treats around if they've done four or five behaviors in a row. And then also, I wouldn't stress too hard about a little bit of whining right now while you build this up unless it seems to be getting built right into the chain. Next one is from Kim. Kim writes, let's talk about young dogs who are suspicious or worried about dogs and people. And let's just say they're a working group dog. I don't know, like a Doberman from Working Lines, <laughs> which happens to be exactly what dog Kim is talking about. Um, when do you use look at that from control and leash protocols? And when do you use Amy's boogeyman type stuff? So that's Amy Cook's Playway. From what I understand on my brief forays into reading up on both, in Look at That, we click when the dog looks away, but Amy encourages us to click reward when the dog looks at us. Timing matters, and what differentiates these two is what we're actually clicking for, the looking way or the reorienting. So which do you recommend in, in which situations? So first of all, a little bit of um, method explaining, because in the Playway, which is Amy Cook's Boogeyman class, there is no clicking and treating. It's all play-based training. It's all um, it's all increasing the dog's comfort with the trigger via play. Amy does teach look and dismiss, which is similar to look at that in the sense that the dog looks at the trigger and she does mark when the dog dismisses, if I'm getting that right. I don't love talking about other people's methodology because I could very well be getting it wrong. Um... So clicking the dog for, but I think the, the basis of your question, Kim, is should we mark and reward looking or disengaging? Which one? And, and when, right? And the answer is it depends. I don't know. It totally depends on what's going on. And in reality, I don't do a whole lot of what you're talking about in general. I don't do a whole lot of trying to train the dog to not look at stuff or to look at stuff and then to look at me. I do a whole lot of letting the dog habituate to triggers, setting the dog up to feel safer around the trigger. Um, I would say that clicking and treating the dog for looking and the dog will inherently look away to eat the food. It doesn't actually matter that much if you're clicking the dog for looking or clicking the dog for looking back. If, if the behavior loop is still dog looks, dog looks back, right? So if, if that's still the chain that's occurring, I don't actually care where the marker comes in. And I know, I mean, people will probably roll their eyes at that, but I don't. And maybe that's because this isn't how I do it. But... Um, I would say that in general, what I recommend instead of either of the things you're talking about, which are look at that or look and dismiss, those are actually the two things you're talking about. I like to let the dog just observe from a safe enough distance. When they dismiss and choose to walk away, I walk away with them. I might do some treat scatters so that they're snuffling through the grass and then looking up and then looking back down. 
I can't give you a full-blown behavior modification protocol here, but I think you're basically asking, when do you do look at that versus when do you look do look and dismiss? And I'm saying it doesn't matter that much. They're very similar. I don't necessarily find myself doing either very often. And our next one comes from Aaron. Aaron writes, I have two dogs, a three-year-old Great Pyrenees mix named Charlie and an almost one-year-old Sheltie named Sprout. I try to take them on at least one decompression walk a day. Sprout is very interested in chasing and harassing Charlie, who mostly ignores her in his quest to kill every single mouse in the vicinity. When Sprout has walked alone, she's very slow and methodical and sniffs a ton, versus with Charlie, she fixates and stalks and bites his face. Occasionally, Charlie will give in and play, so this behavior is very reinforced. Sprout is kept on a long line so that I can keep them separate, but it's frustrating for all three of us. If I bring a tug or a disc, I can distract her with those, but I don't love the idea of hyping her up on those toys every day. Other than solo walks, which I love but don't always have time for, what do you recommend for discouraging this behavior and encouraging her to actually sniff and relax? And just to add, she's not food-driven and will typically ignore scatters even if it's high-value like Zeewee Peak. Erin, you just said that you don't want to walk them by themselves. And I'm here to tell you, you need to walk them by themselves. Sprout is too young for you to insist that she not do exactly what everything inside her is telling her to do. Charlie deserves his own walk where he gets to sniff and not be harassed. And Sprout is doing exactly what you want her to do if she's alone. Which means that if you only have time to go on one walk then you only walk one dog and the next day the next dog the other dog gets to go it is not good like you said taking all three of them at once is frustrating for everybody so that's a that's a worthless decompression walk that didn't help anybody so you actually are saving time doing a better job if you take them by themselves i know that's not the answer you wanted but that is the answer that i have for you last one comes from connor Connor writes, how do you address dogs that take treats hard, assuming it's not because of big feelings? Now that it's cold out, my hands are frozen, and I'm realizing some of my hiking group uh, dogs have less than stellar treat-taking manners. The ways I was taught are very similar to the standard leave-it exercises, close your hand, remove your hand, etc., which is less than ideal due to frustration, extinction bursts, etc. Fun bonus, the dropping treats or tossing treats isn't generally possible as my groups often include resource garters and other spicy dogs. Generally, I fall back on the Kong hand-style delivery, but would love to hear your ideas. So, Connor, first of all... Um, Thank you for mentioning that dropping and tossing treats is not going to work in your group because that is certainly one option. I would be feeding these dogs with a cupped hand. So feed them like you'd feed a horse. Okay, so put it in the, your cupped hand and then swoop the hand underneath them like, you're, like they are a large horse that you are feeding to keep away from you and to not have the horse bite your thumb, right? So... Um, Feed them like a horse. That's the number one. That's the hand motion and style that I would use. And then the other thing that a lot of times is involved is that it is feelings. And the feelings are exactly the feelings you just told me about, which is resource guarding feelings, right? So you can't toss the treat, but you're thinking the dog doesn't have big feelings when you hand food. And I'm calling that out as incorrect. So if you can't toss the food, and the dog sharky on your hand, it's still about big feelings about food. So 
make sure that you say the dog's name and then cleanly deliver that food in the cupped hand to that specific dog only and block other dogs from trying to get it. That tends to clean it up in my group when they start to get sharky. I'm like, okay, what are you doing wrong? Well, you forgot to say names that time or your mechanics were poor that time. So clean up those mechanics. Do I call it pony feeding where you just put the cookie in your hand, cup the hand, um, put it under their chin and also say name, give eye contact to that dog and then deliver. Let me know how it's going. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers.